0: Good morning, my name's Alan and uh, I'm going to be reading from God's Word this morning uh, from Luke chapter 7 verses 1 through to 17 and the NIV version When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum There a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly and he said, goes, and then one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had seen been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier. They were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they cried god has come to help his people this news about jesus spread throughout judea and the surrounding country may the lord bless his word to us
1: good morning welcome to wdbc my name is stephen I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you on a Sunday morning I'm generally at the back with your children if you have children and uh, there we've been learning the Ten Commandments and uh, I love children and I love being able to work with them uh, because I love how beautiful they are at simply believing what they hear. They have this genuine capacity to hear and take it in and believe that what the person is telling me is true. It's just very precious. What I also laugh about in kids' church, and I'm allowed to say this because some of my kids are in kids' church, is how much they're like little Pharisees. I teach them and I'll say something like, love thy neighbor, and they want to ask me if that really has to involve their parents and their siblings. They want to know how much of the law can I get away with doing without doing, and God still has to remain on my good side. They make me laugh in that regard. And I find we often, we often still do this, even as adults, we probably do it more so than they do it. We wanna calculate how much can I, can I follow God, but not have to follow him completely, yet still have God's favor upon my life. And what we do is we work Christianity into this great calculator. Where, where I put in so much and then God has to give out so much. And that's how we get to places with inside Christianity where you, you tithe your part to the church and, and God will calculate 10 times back to you. He's the big accountant in this scenario. Or, or you pray with this much emotion and, and intensity and God will answer the next three prayers. Or, or you put in this much obedience and, and God will have to remain on your side because, because you followed through on your end. That's the bargain. It's a big calculator. God is the big calculator. And what we'd find if God truly was our big calculator, <laughs> we're in a deficit, right? He'd look at my spending. I don't give it to the kingdom, work, I give it to myself. You look at my prayer life, and I'm probably more flippant in prayer than I am talking to the police officer when he's pulled me over. I do my good works, and yet most of them in motivation probably are still self-seeking in a lot of the ways. And in this kind of understanding, I can expect really not to get anything good back from God at all. But thanks be to Jesus that he taught us that if God is like anything, it's not a calculator. He's not pre-programmed. If there's anything we can point to in this world of what God is like, he's a loving father who cares for his children despite what they do and have done. That He cares for them. He is compassionate to them and he restores them. God is a being. We are made in his image. He has a distinct character, he has a nature. He's emotional, he's not overruled by his emotions and led into sin like we do, but he has moved in his inner being to help people and to be with them. He cares and it's to this end that I'm going to preach this morning that God has a character and that character is loving. That he has a nature and that he is compassionate to the unworthy. And that's what we're going to be looking at. And so when you weep bitterly at night or in the morning, maybe you've lost a loved one like the widow in this story, or perhaps your body is sick and it's falling apart like the servant, well life just seems to be in a bit of shambles like the centurion and you're lamenting life at this point. God is compassionate, and he is near. He hears the cries of his people just as much now as he did when they cried out at Egypt. And out of no other motivation or compulsion does God come to you in your pleading and your crying for the good of mankind, but simply because he loves those who are unworthy. I've titled this morning, What Moves the Father's Heart, And what we're going to witness is two people who could not be more different and what happens to them when they encounter the kingdom of God. And we're going to look through the material by looking at some of the similarities or some of the themes that present themselves even though they are quite different. The first thing that we're going to look at is the recipients, so those that encounter Jesus. That's the centurion and the widow. And the common thread that we're going to find there is humility, and we'll get to that. Second, we're going to look at the response of Jesus or the response of God, and the common thread we'll find there is compassion. Third, we will look at faith and the outcome of the miraculous that Jesus performs. Now, also, if I start speaking like I'm commentating at a horse race, that is because I'm trying to power on through, so (laughs) forgive me for that. But let's pray, and we'll move into the text. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are so good to us. Lord, help us to trust in you. That you have eyes of love for people. That you care for them. Lord, help us to take the message today and to live out of the knowledge that you give us. In your name, amen. All right, seven, one to three. Jesus, after he finishes teaching, as we just went through with Jonathan on the Sermon on the Plain, he enters a town called Capernaum, a fishing village uh, that Jesus makes home base. That's where he likes to chill out when he's ministering in Galilee. This is, according to Luke's Gospel, where Jesus has already been before. He's, he's healed, he has uh, cast out demons in this place. One of the people that he healed was uh, Peter's mother, And one of these um, casting out of the demonic forces happens in the synagogue, actually. And it is most likely the place where uh, the the synagogue that the centurion, as we're going to see, that he's helped build for the Jews in this town. And so it's no doubt that in a village, a fishing village is small and, and, and the location of where Jesus is ministering so mightily that the centurion has a great knowledge of who Jesus is in his deeds the centurion who is posted where he is he's a seasoned soldier you could not become a centurion unless you'd face battle and and you proved yourself as one of the theologians kind of uh, said that i was reading through this guy is like a man of men he's got uh, nerves of steel he's ready to die at his post daily He's, he's, uh, he's got his men underneath him. There's a hundred of them, Centurion. He's got a century of men, a hundred men at his disposal. He's feared by the general public because Rome's might is, is exercised through him. The might of Rome is working through this, this man. He's also revered, uh, revered, sorry, revered, revered by the general public. He's got a good station. He has a lot of authority where he is. He's secure. And that is the external knowledge that we have of the centurion. And then we come to the widow. And we don't really actually get to have much of an insight of this lady. Uh, She's from a town, uh, Nain, a town in southern Galilee. Her ethnicity uh, is unknown to us, whether she's Jew or Gentile, appears to be irrelevant to Luke. But what is highlighted about this lady is simply simply her, her vulnerability. Or her lowliness firstly she's a widow which tells us that her, her husband has passed and the son her only son that is meant to be the protector and provider for the family he's quite young and, and he's passed away on an untimely death and so what this is telling us is that this elderly single woman is just about to get caught up in a system And so by way of contrast, we have this Roman centurion soldier, security, authority, status, wealth, an elderly woman, no family, no status, no authority, no Bible way of living. And yet in both portraits, what we have is a kingdom of God that sees good pleasure in giving to them both. Why? The kingdom of God has come essentially to bless all people but the ones whom are willing to receive that are the ones who are humble or who have humility. And humility is the common thread here that we're looking at. And there are three forms of humility uh, that we'll address this morning. Two, which pertain to the sermon, and the third one, which I just found for interest's sake, is still good, because it's still relevant. Uh, But number one, there's there's a form of humility, and that's the state of just being in humble circumstance. You're poor, destitute, You're low in the social ranking. Mary's song when she is about to uh, conceive and have baby Jesus, she sings in her song, you look at the humble state of your servant. You have regard for the, the humble circumstance that you find me in. Our sister the widow is a kind of person that you'd find oppressed by society, low social standing. And she really is going to be thrown after this funeral's finished thrown into the hands of society that they might act compassionately to her. There is no government assistance here. You're not going to get yourself into a house somewhere along the line. You're left at the whims of what people will do. The second type of humility is one of virtue. That's the inner character and workings of the person. And this kind of humility is having a sober judgment of yourself in light of a greater authority or someone Above you, biblically speaking, this type of of humility is one that submits themselves to God. I always have a giggle in Numbers where it says, Moses was the most humble man in all the world. As many of you know, we believe Moses wrote Numbers, and so it's not humility to say that. It would actually be arrogance to say that. But what it's saying is, though, though Moses has a boast that he is the greatest prophet, he is humble in that he revered the Lord. He followed the Lord. He was someone that submitted to the word of God. And our centurion friend, though he has a great boast, he has great authority, he has honor and prestige, he humbles himself under Lord Jesus. And lastly, like I said, for interest's sake, there is a humility of spirit or a brokenness of spirit. We just heard this in the psalm. Those who are poor in spirit, one lacking before God, and they yearn to be made right before him. Someone that I think of is Levi the tax collector. A wealthy as dude, big fat wallet, big house, right, through all the parties. Inwardly the man was crushed until he found Jesus. God's favour for the uh, favour or the kingdom's blessing, rests on those who are humble. And this is a, com- uh, a common principle, actually, that we find in Scripture, five or six times. You will read, God opposes proud people, but shows grace to the humble. God's kingdoms and its blessing are they for everyone to share? in Yes, but the humble receive it. Why? Not because they are worthy of them, because they find themselves to be poor or broken in spirit or whatever, but because the kingdom offers. What they know that they lack, and so they're willing to receive it. Arrogant and proud people cannot receive and cannot inherit the kingdom because they can't see anything in it worth having. Consider the rich young ruler had all the wealth, and he comes to Jesus. How do I have eternal life? Give it all up and follow me. But when he considers what is of more worth, it is my earthly possessions that are worth more to me than following you. And he misses out. Comfort of life is the downfall of so many and why they will miss out on inheriting the kingdom. Or consider those who make much of themselves. I need to be respected I need to be honored. I need to be seen well by others. It's my my pride and my arrogance that I have some status. And why would they follow a king who deserves all glory and all praise and all honor? And yet when he was here, all he was was despised and rejected. I'm not going to follow Jesus. I would rather die. Than be despised by people and they miss out. Pride of oneself. Self righteousness. The prideful boast that somehow, on my own terms, I'm going to have equality with God. That He's going to accept me because of what I did. It's pride. Anyone like this will never inherit the kingdom. And this is why Jesus will tell us in the Beatitudes, it's the poor, it's the poor in spirit, it's the one who submit themselves and follow my word. They are the blessed ones, they are the favored ones by God because humility recognizes they're in need. Are you humble before the Lord? I was trying to think, how do we gauge this? Self-reflection, I don't know about you, but I find that so hard. Self-reflection is really hard. How does God see me? Well, it's really hard. You have to have the mind of God to know exactly how he sees you. I'm not God. Are you humble before God? I've got a question that I hope helps you gauge your response to that. What makes God answer your prayers? What makes God answer your prayers? And hopefully we'll find that when we look at the centurion right now. The centurion, the big tough guy, is a little softy on the inside. He he, uh, has a high place in society as we said, but when he looks at the sick state of his servant about to die, he's very compassionate for him, someone underneath him. Now under Roman rule and under Roman law, this guy is technically the slave. He's just a piece of farm equipment. You, you chuck it out if it gets rusty and old and you just get a new one to do, to do the job. But this guy, even though he has such a high authority, he, he has a compassion for this man. And not only so, but he seems to be a God-fearing man. He's built a synagogue, that is, he's built a Jewish church for God's people. And what's expressed through the elders' mouths, the Jews, is the motivation or the intent of why he would be like this. The centurion loves them. He occupies Jewish territory and he loves those who are subject to him. And so he's not motivated for status or collaboration with the people, as was often the case with a lot of what Rome did. That was nice. He genuinely cares for these people. And the centurion hears the news of Jesus coming into the town, so he sends the Jewish elders out to ask him to come and heal the servant. The elders ask Jesus to come and respond to him, and they say, do this, and you should do it on the basis of of what he's done. He's a good guy. He is worthy. And the statement is true enough. If there's going to be anyone that Jesus should answer and respond to, This guy, he's compassionate, you know, he's caring, he's, he's loving, he's a good person. We would look at this man and be like, that guy, that guy's a good man. Jesus goes along with the elders and just as he's nearing the house, Jesus is met by the centurion's friend who expresses the humility, the inner working of the man. So this is the centurion's words found on his friend's lips. Lord, don't trouble yourself. For I do not deserve you to come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come out to meet you. Why did he send the Jewish elders? Because I don't believe that I'm worthy to even go stand in front of this man. But I know that he's your God, so you go and ask for me. Why did I send my friends out? Because I don't find myself worthy to go and talk to this man. And Luke highlights the inner workings of the centurion. As I said, humility is one of these. The Jews say, He is worthy. I was looking at the Greek word for this. And the worthiness here being the idea if there is a a scale. Jesus, this, this centurion, he stands at a level with you that you should respond to him. He has worth at your level. But then when the centurion, through the lips of his friends, comes up to him and he says, I'm unworthy, he uses a different word which says, I'm insufficient. I'm insufficient. If we were placed on scales, Lord, you are high above me. And I'm unworthy. My deeds and my status, Jesus, you still remain above me. And the second inner working of the centurion is reverence. He reveres Jesus and reverence is always linked to humility. If you're a humble person, you revere those above you. If you're an arrogant person who thinks much of yourself, you don't think anyone is above you. But he's a humble man and there's reverence. He realizes that there's a chasm and there's two types of chasms here between him and Jesus. Religiously speaking, it is unclean for a Jew to go and sit in the house of a Gentile because Jews are God's people and Gentiles, they're not. And he is unworthy to come under his roof. But authoritatively speaking, the centurion also notices something else. He presumes himself not to be worthy even to come out to meet the Lord. I was trying to compare this to something it would be like me sending someone over to England to ask the Queen would you mind coming over and just checking the knock in my car just could you do that for me he doesn't even see himself as worthy to stand in the presence of the Lord as I wouldn't even consider the Queen to even think about even listening to her to come and see me let alone help me out with something What we see on the inner man of the centurion as well, as Jesus so readily sees, is faith. He trusts in this Lord who is far above him. And the centurion's theology, which is the best, his knowledge of God is simple and it's beautiful. And he finds this theology purely through his workplace in the army. And this is how it works first he he says what he knows speak lord just speak and i know that my servant will be healed and then he expresses why he knows that this will happen i know that this will happen jesus because my authority comes from above it comes from the emperor and my might and the power that i have is invested in me from someone greater And so I know that all the subjects, all the servants, and all the soldiers have to listen to me based on what the emperor has given me. I am the might of Rome executing as I will in the land. But you, Lord, you speak and creation obeys you. And I know that your power is from on high. He learned this by working in the army. Jesus is gobsmacked. The centurion believes and knows who he is with such little knowledge. Even Israel, Jesus says, even Israel, the people who have the wealth of knowledge of everything about me don't even have this kind of trust in me. You see, great faith is not having this in-depth knowledge of God. It's trusting in Jesus with the knowledge that you have. Israel had all the theology. This guy had the army to base himself off who Jesus was. And that's a rebuke on people such as ourselves who can have a great knowledge and no trust. The one really nice, good thing that I hear about this church It's got good theology. God's word is expressed here well. And I'd like to agree with that. I think its doctrine is good. But is there any faith in it? Is there any trust in that which we know? Because it is not enough for me to sit here and to tell you the centurion believed that Jesus is Lord based on his authority and you should too. Faith runs much deeper than just this. Did the centurion have faith that Jesus is Lord? 100% he did. But he also had faith that Jesus would hear his cries and his pleas and answer him. Even though he be unworthy. He believes that Jesus will be compassionate. That he will be merciful to someone who doesn't even deserve to be in the presence of God. He trusts in the love of God for him. How many of us, how many of you have contained the idea that your faith is just knowing that Jesus is Lord? But you do not believe by faith that he would hear your prayers and your cries and answer them for no other reason than simply that he is compassionate towards you. That he loves you. That he's merciful to those that are undeserving. That it has nothing to do with your performance. But it has everything to do with the character and the nature of God. How many of us have stopped praying or asking God with any anticipation that God can do anything? Because I haven't been good this week because I didn't pray as much as I needed to. How many of us have stopped praying except for maybe the dinner prayer? Because the idea that God intervenes and that he cares about the little small things in life just aren't important enough for him to worry about. And how many of us passively sit there and go, well, God's just sovereign, he's got it all covered, so I don't really need to pray, but in reality what we show is that we doubt the Lord would even consider changing your life for the better. Faith should bring us into prayer more, not out of it. And that's what this man is doing. He's praying. He's pleading with Christ. When I was in p I got to visit this church in a small little village. There was this really old, old lady giving her testimony about what God had done for her for that week. And she says... I'm in my field, and I'm digging my rows. I could understand the majority of it, and I'm digging my rows, and there's a really, really big rock. And I knew I couldn't move it, and I tried, but it, it was gonna take a big man, a big man was needed for this job. She goes, so I left my field, I walked into the village to go get a big man to help me move this rock. And I'm done there, they're all out hunting. So I walked back out into my village. And it was there, uh, back out into my field, sorry. And as I'm there, out in my field, I remembered from one of the Sundays, God gives strength. So I prayed. God gave me strength. And I, with God's help, I moved this big rock. I did it. And we sit here in churches, and we hear these stories in these little villages, and we think, That's cute. Does God care enough for a lady in the middle of a field in the middle of nowhere to move a stone that she might do well in her field? Is he compassionate enough for someone like this? Of course he is. Is this precisely the kind of faith that God is looking for in his people that they might even ask for just their daily bread? their daily needs, as the Lord taught us to. That he loves me and he cares for me so much that he might even move a stone. As great and as high as he might be, he looks on little old lowly me so I can grow my veggies. You see, the church can keep its theological squabbles over Calvinism and Arminianism, Give me a faith like this, pure gold. Our faith should sound like Jesus is Lord. He is compassionate to the unworthy. He has enough power to heal me from sickness. And he is compassionate and loving. He has enough power to help me in marriage and I know he cares for me enough to do so. He knows that I have a financial distress and he is powerful enough and loving enough to do so. I struggle with depression and anxiety and mental illness and he is compassionate and loving and has enough authority to do so. Not because I'm good. Not because I execute all my prayers 100% right. Not for any other reason, but his nature and his compassion is one of love for you and I plead, and I ask with the Father. Does God have the power to do this? Does God have the power to do this in your life? I know he does, but does he? Does God love you enough to do so? I know he does. But does he? Trust it. You see, he moves mountains not because you're sitting there generating up some mustard seed worth of faith and then once you've finally accumulated this little mustard seed of faith and you can present that and twist God's arm and then be like, bam, gotcha you, God, you have to give me what I want. Jesus is saying, even faith as tiny as this, as tiny as this, can move mountains because the one that you have faith in made them. He made them. I'll summarize here. We look at the centurion, and he's pleading with God. And then we look at the widow. And unbeknown to her, she's just crying. She doesn't even know who's in front of her. But God is in her presence. We look at the centurion, and here is a man full of faith that Jesus can heal and do. We look at the widow. She's just crying. There's no faith displayed here that is making Jesus respond to her, except the fact that he just cares for her. That's it. The very nature and character of God. As I said, faith does not bend the arm somehow to make God give us the things that we want in prayer. Faith is the response that God loves to give us things, even though we're undeserving. Furthermore, without faith, God still acts mercifully to those in mourning. How many testimonies are there of people where life has brought them down to their knees and in desperation they cry out, they have no knowledge of God. They're not even sure if he really exists at all. And lo and behold, our God who is full of mercy reveals himself to them for no other reason than he wants to restore them because he loves them. The response of God to save humanity, to heal humanity, to give them the very breath that they breathe, to give you your daily bread, and whatever other good thing that there may be is given through His love and His compassion for you. What makes God answer your prayers? Nothing but his love and his compassion for you. In the background of these two portraits, there's two other stories running on from the Old Testament. And in these two stories is Elijah and Elisha. I've just realized I've got four minutes left. (laughs) Both prophets perform what Jesus performs. And it, and it's anyway, we'll just get to the point. Elisha commands the Gentile uh, uh, army man. He said he comes to with him in a skin disease, and he says to him, "Look, just go wash in the Jordan seven times." And Naaman, that's the the commander guy, he gets really annoyed, and he gets annoyed for two reasons. The first reason is he wanted Elisha to come out and, and, and kind of whip up this miracle and, and do something for God, and then he'd be healed. He wanted to see it kind of happen. And then the other reason he gets really annoyed is because he's traveled all this way to go see the prophet Elisha. And Elisha doesn't even see him. He just sends someone else out. And that guy says, go wash in the Jordan. And Naaman's like, there are rivers absolutely everywhere. Why couldn't I just wash in a river back home? Why do I have to come all this way and wash in the dirty Jordan? It's not even that nice anyways. Nevertheless, he goes and he does it. He comes out and it says that his skin is restored to that of a young man. And when he comes out of the water, he goes back to the prophet and he says, There is no God in all the world except here in Israel. There is no God anywhere except in Israel. The miracle is performed not only for the betterment of Naaman, but to show him that there is a God and he belongs to the Jews. There are many rivers, but only one can cleanse. There are many religions, but there is only one God who is able to redeem and save, and that is Jesus Christ. The miracle, sorry, and the second prophet Elijah, he raises a son back to life and gives this son back to his mother, who is also a widow. And after raising the boy back to life, This is her testimony. Now, I know for a fact that you are a man of God and the Lord's word in your mouth is true. The confirmation that God is present among the people and that their words are true is found in the miraculous, in the deed. You see, Jesus raises this dead boy back to life and the people make this connection. They go, we've seen this happen before. We know what's going on. This is in Israel's history. This is repetitive or repetition. A great prophet of God is with us. But they make an even greater claim. God has visited his people or God has come to help his people. The difference between Jesus resurrecting this dead boy and Elijah resurrecting this dead boy, Elijah pleads to God, God, bring him back to life, please. Jesus simply gives a command. Get up. The point of difference is who Jesus is. He is not just a mouthpiece. He is. Lastly, Luke never really actually finishes the story completely. All we see is that the servant's better. And the centurion, he knows something. Jesus doesn't need proximity to make creation obey him he doesn't have to be in the room what he may not have gathered is Jesus actually doesn't even need to verbally communicate anything in order for his will to be accomplished Jesus never speaks he doesn't ever give the command to the sick servant that is because Jesus himself he is the power he is the authority He is the life, he is the light, he is God. God has come to his people. Miracles are not only to be hoped in by faith, that they can take place, but they are signs and evidence given to us that we might believe that God has come for his people and that he has come for good That widow, when he talked, when Elijah talked to her, she said, have you come to show me of my iniquities and to kill my son? And he came only to bless and resurrect the dead. Why has Christ come? Not to condemn you in your sins, but to bless you and give you life abundantly because he cares and he loves you. I'll finish here because we're one minute over. A few chapters back in Luke, Jesus has already taught us about Elijah and Elisha and what they did. And the reason that he's telling the people about Elijah and Elisha is because when he's in his hometown, he says to them, you know, those two prophets, they didn't go to their people. They went to Gentiles. They went to the seemingly unworthy and undeserving And can you imagine being Theophilus, the very person that this is written for, which is a Gentile man, who would dare to believe in Jesus Christ, and he wants assurance. And Jesus has just finished giving us the Beatitudes and who the kingdom is coming for, and the first person that Jesus meets is a centurion, a man who has authority that is later going to slay Jesus to death on a cross. And Jesus has come to bless this man and to give him life. And so when you walk into church and you come in and you're like, my week was stuffed up and I'm unworthy and I'm undeserving and I just feel so far removed from the Lord. You're probably there. It is exactly your type that God came for. That faith is despite what I've done. God loves me and he wants to show me compassion. (laughs) As always, we're going to have communion soon, but after the service, I just ask you to pray, whether it's by yourself or with someone beside you. I always leave myself open for prayer. God cares for your eternal soul. he also cares that you might have bread tomorrow morning he cares for both he tells us to ask for deliverance and to ask for bread because he is Lord of it all all of it let's pray Heavenly Father thank you that you are so good to us Lord help us to trust that you love, that you care, and not to doubt. Thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you that you did not leave us nor forsake us, but you proved that you love us by going to the cross for us, for redeeming us. Lord, change our hearts to be ones that fully depend on you. In your name, amen.